Welcome to Market Corner Conversations, sponsored by Foresight Health. This is where outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Market Corner Conversations is Foresight Health's regular podcast series. It explores the intricacies of market-driven health reform. We dig deep into the U.S. system's structural inefficiencies. We explain how its artificial economics and distorted business models rob the American people of the great health care they deserve. We identify and talk with innovative companies that are reinventing healthcare delivery by being better, faster, cheaper, and more customer-friendly. We have a delightful program today with a delightful person and a terrific physician, Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips. Amy is a good friend and also the Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer for Providence St. Joseph Health. Prov St. Joe's is one of the nation's largest health systems with over 50 hospitals, 800 clinics, hundreds of programs, and 110,000 employees serving communities as far away as Alaska, California, Montana, New Mexico, Oregon, Texas, and Washington. Before going to Prov St. Joe, Amy had held a similar position at Kaiser Permanente. She was medical director of the Permanente Foundation. And part of the reason she took on the challenge of St. Joe is she wanted to bring the integrated care delivery so prevalent at Kaiser into a more traditional health system. So we get to uh, talk to Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips and learn about her journey uh, in terms of transforming healthcare delivery at one of the nation's largest and most progressive health systems. Amy, welcome to Market Corner Conversations. Tell us, tell us how you got to be where you are today. Sure. Well, thanks. That's, that's a big question. And so I will uh, do my best not to have a long and winding soliloquy. Um, I, like, like many people who go into healthcare, um, wanted to be a doctor from the time I was a little girl. Like I really never had any other goal in life other than to be a physician. So it, I just knew that was for me. Um, and I had the luck to, um, you know, go straight to college, straight on to med school. And, and kind of the model I had in mind the whole time was, you know, I'm old enough that Marcus Welby was my, my vision of a, of a doctor. And I wanted to work in a small town and know everybody in the city and get paid in chickens and, and really just be part of the community. Um, but, but once you go to medical school, then you start getting converted and drawn into all these other cool things you can do in medicine, like like um, not just take care of sick people, but also help keep them well. And and I, I, I wanted to be primary care. I, you know, I, I specifically went into primary care. I'm an internist by training. And because I was really kind of pulled into that model of, of wanting to keep people healthy, Right out of residency, um, I had the opportunity to join Kaiser Permanente, and I spent the next 22 years at KP really honing my my craft. and And I loved working with Kaiser, and I loved the philosophy um, there that that really it's not only sick care but it's healthcare that people care about. And had the opportunity. Um, one thing that Kaiser Permanente does exceptionally well is invest in developing leaders of the future. And so as I started being asked to do other things in addition to practicing medicine. So whether it was being a, a department chief or running a medical office or um, eventually became the population health leader um, for the Washington, D.C. metro area, um, that, that they would help giving us skills and learning how to do that. 
Now, back in, it was early in the 2000s where I was the population health head in the mid-Atlantic region of, of Kaiser Permanente. And, and at that point, like, nobody really knew what it was, you know, it was kind of figuring mm-hmm. things out. Um, and so one of the things that, that happened around the same time as electronic medical records came around and we started having data. And so I learned how if you actually put together data together with systems like Kaiser Permanente is historically very good at, you could actually really make big impacts in care. And so we started um, really putting into practice things like understanding when people weren't um, in control of having their blood pressure or their their diabetes at goals, or if they were missing cancer screenings, and, and then building in tools and building in ways to communicate with both patients and with physicians to do the right thing, making it really easy. So that was great, um, cool thing to do. And then I got a call from folks in, in Oakland um, and, and had the opportunity to move out um, and work at the national office um, with the Permanente Federation, which is the physician side of Kaiser Permanente, um, and really helped do um, work to improve the care across our entire delivery system, working very closely with, with the leaders in all the regions. Um, and after doing that for a few years, got a call from Providence St. Joseph Health and and because uh, they needed a chief clinical officer and, and wanted to change care and so definitely got lured in by the by the vision that Providence St. Joseph Health has to really make an impact um, for everyone in our communities um, including the poor and vulnerable because as you know healthcare today um, the, the healthcare system in the U.S. despite great intentions of the people who work in the system is delivering care that is less effective and more costly than any comparator nations around the globe. And so we need to fix that. Right now, we, we, we don't deliver what our communities need in a way that people find satisfying. Um, and the price that we pay for that is almost double the next highest nation. That we're Now we're up to almost 18% of our GDP, almost one in six dollars that we spend in the country goes into the healthcare system. And we're not getting value for that money. And so here we are at Providence St. Joseph Health trying to change that, trying to make it so that we deliver better care at lower cost in a way that simplifies life both for caregivers and for patients. So that's the goal. What a wonderful series of objectives to to get up every morning and work on. I'm chuckling a bit that you mentioned Marcus Welby. I've been writing a uh, piece the last couple of days on emerging models of primary care, and I actually started it with with Marcus Welby. Uh, For those of you younger than Amy and I, uh, uh, Marcus Welby, MD, was the number one show in in, uh, television in the early 70s, and he was a friendly primary care physician who – Called all his patients by his first na- by their first name, and often uh, thought about how to solve uh, medical issues while he was out on his boat sailing. And I, I use it. Uh, I mention it, and you mention it because I think in many ways we're trying to rediscover that type of of personalized, caring, uh, relationship based primary care services. That if we do that right, uh, the rest of healthcare becomes easy. And since the early 70s, uh, healthcare has become much more sophisticated, much more technological. But with all of that gain has has been a loss in this connection between patients and caregivers. Amy, I wonder, since I know this is uh, deeply important to you, if you could talk about the primary care relationship, the, the portal into the healthcare system, 
how we can um, really recapture that Dr. Welby-like concern for the patient, focus on the patient, relationship with the patient so that it becomes a journey, a medical journey, uh, really for any type of condition where the patient and the, and the organization and the caregivers all walk it together. Sure. Um, well, I think you, you described the problem really well, you know, and, and for people who have never had a really strong relationship with their physician, I would just reflect back, you know, ask you to kind of think around the rest of your life and whether or not some, you know, a lot of women who have great relationships with their hairdressers or men with their barbers or, or their lawyers, you know, that, that often people need a trusted advisor who you can go to for care. And if you look around the, every culture, you know, anthropologically speaking, every culture has had healers. And healers tend to not just be technical um, people who are highly skilled at their individual technical skill, but, but actually um, have an understanding of the whole person, what their goals are and their values are and their beliefs are, and are able to work with them in that relationship. And so as we have gotten increasingly um, science-based and technically skilled with the latest cutting-edge attributes of care, we have sometimes unintentionally scienced out that, that relationship piece that's so important when you have a trusted advisor for your whatever it is, in this case for your health. Um, other countries, by the way, haven't done that. You know, and, and I do think it's a byproduct of the payment system that we value technical competence in the U.S. and paid it more extensively than we have um, the relationship-based skills and the knowledge-based skills. So we've made primary care a less, you know, valued in the sense of compensation um, uh, specialty than we have in some of the, the ones that require more technical surgeons-type things or interventionalist-type things. So we've, we have... We have distanced ourselves from the value of primary care. In countries that have very strong primary care systems where um, the vast majority of care is actually received from a primary care physician, they do have exactly what I was referencing earlier, better health outcomes and a significantly lower cost basis. And by the way, the people in those societies are happier with their care. Yeah, how do you, how do you think about reestablishing that critical primary care bond at a uh, at the individual level, at the community level, uh, within a big, complex, multi-layered system like Providence St. Joseph Health? Well, for this one, I almost say it's within the American healthcare system. Okay. Um, and so I'm going to draw back again on my experience with Kaiser Permanente. Okay. KP did a very good job of making sure that people had, you know, the members of Kaiser Permanente, because when you join Kaiser Permanente, you... Um, you join a health system and then you, you use the physicians within that healthcare system. And part of that joining is picking a primary care physician. And if you don't pick, they will assign one for you, but they really encourage people to pick to make sure they get one that matches to them. And you can change it at any time, but, but you kind of then have like the one person who's responsible for everything. And, and that level of accountability then kind of opens up new worlds to say, okay, if I'm not coming in, they know, and they know what I'm overdue for, and somebody is going to be reminding me what I'm due for and, and how I can stay healthy. Um, and you also have, like, that one number to call. So, so the, in that system, it works. So there's not something that's different about the American population that doesn't have us benefit from primary care physicians. 
But I think that the the payment models and systems that are being experimented with now around the country, whether it's accountable care organizations or um, you know Medicaid managed care plans or um, CMS has uh, Medi- Medicare has managed care plans, and virtually all of those systems also encourage having one clinician who is the quarterback of the team mm-hmm. that cares for a person. Great, and I think as we're starting to experiment with these models, um, that we will actually start seeing a resurgence in the need for primary care clinicians. Now, the challenge is going to be in that we're not training nearly as many as we used to because of the vast difference in, in dollars and prestige and work life um, that, that people have stopped going into primary care in terms of physicians. We now have many more nurse practitioners going into the field, so we may end up seeing the the uh, workforce makeup of primary care be different in the future. But but again, that's a consequence of the way we've evolved um, where we are today. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Uh, medical uh, education in the United States uh, produces about two thirds specialists each year and one third primary care, it probably needs to be exactly the opposite of that. And in some ways, we're making these medical schools in the Caribbean very rich because they're producing the primary care physicians that the American medical system isn't. I wonder if the marketplace over time won't take care of that because what we probably need to do if you want real quarterbacks and real problem solvers on the front line of care, uh, we're going to have to pay people more money. So it probably means taking uh, resources out of acute and specialty care and putting them into uh, primary care, nurse practitioners, uh, more distributed capabilities, more time with patients in, in primary care clinics. Do you see that happening and is that the type of change you're, you're trying to push for within your health system? Well, you know, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting. Right. So <laughs> yeah, our system today true. is perfectly designed to have highly disparate um, pay for uh, procedural-based specialties and for primary care, and it is designed the way that it's functioning today to produce the health outcomes that we have, which are great curative things when you have a major problem and very poor prevention and, and population-level health outcomes. So I would say that we are doing our best mm-hmm. to work with the system um, in the way that it is, but but again, until we get to a, a something like a hundred percent capitated system, like, mm-hmm. like Kaiser Permanente is closer to, um, that it's harder to to flip the U.S. healthcare system on its head, right? And all of a sudden, create pay equity between these two very disparate kind of areas. So um, I can tell you that again, other countries that have this more primary care focused. Um, care delivery system, that the pay is much uh, closer to par between primary care and specialty care. Good. Well, um, thank you for for that observation. We we like to say here at Foresight Health that, that value follows payment. Uh, really, the point you were making, uh, value follows payment in healthcare. It's really not like that in other industries. In other industries, companies create value and then the, the payment flows into the company to receive that value. And uh, I'm going to use that as a segue into the article you and I just wrote together. It had a very provocative title, uh, Platforming 
healthcare, owning hospitals is so 2015. Uh, and uh, Amy and I serve on a, a, a board together and we, were in, we were having a side conversation at one of our meetings and she said, I think the healthcare system of the future is going to be more of a platform. Uh, and we talked about that and the article emerged. But Amy, maybe you could uh, let us into your thinking on how healthcare will evolve as a platform to provide better outcomes, lower prices, uh, more transparency, better customer service, and how, how you think that will unfold. I, you know, how I think it will unfold and how I hope it will unfold um, may be different, <laughs> but, but yeah. I'll stick with the hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, let me just start out by saying a couple things. One, it, there was another article today that that you know our hospitals so pa- are passe. Yeah, Zeke Emanuel um, he wrote that one. Yeah, exactly, Zeke Emanuel's article. Um, and and as I look around the country, and I see craziness happening, um, you know, in this past year, we've had people getting shot at concerts. We've had whole neighborhoods get burnt down in our part of the world over on our coast. We've had mudslides. We've had train derailments. And and people that are injured and harmed and have to go somewhere all go to the, their local hospital. And the local hospitals are there for them when they need them. And so I think that there is something profoundly important about having a highly functional system that is going to be there when you need it to be there. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not saying that we need to disrupt an acute care-based system in the U.S. We need that. But we also need to figure out a way to do that in a, in a very different model than was designed by the Flexner Report back in the early 1900s, you know, which is this, this kind of hub and spoke, everything happens at the hospital except for the little bit of care that can be produced out in the community. Because... Today, we've seen how so many other systems that we thought needed to be location-based or needed to be um, purely delivered by these um, technically excellent individuals that are locked into a geographic bricks-and-mortar location have been able to be disrupted through different tools um, and through different technologies. And so how we can think about applying that same kind of disruptive decoupling of expertise from locale and location Mm-hmm. But as much as we possibly can through new medium, through new tools into the hands of individuals so that they can receive care that works for them where they live, work, and play, um, that doesn't require them to get up and go, and they can help support them in their, their health habits moving forward. So I think that's really critical. And and the same individuals who, who know how to design and build a large building where with 300 beds probably aren't the same people or the same forces or the same skill set that helps you design an app to get PTSD care in your neighborhood. Um, So I I think that with that change and with the rapidity of development of new technologies that we have to really think about, are we, for those of us in care delivery, are we in a sick care delivery system or are we in a health promoting system, and if we are in a health-generating system, what does that look like and who do we need to be as part of that? So, so I, think, I think by really understanding what we're trying to achieve as a goal, um, we can start unburdening ourselves from the way we've always done things mm-hmm. and think about how we might deliver that in new and different ways. 
so that's where the platforming idea kind of came from is what do we not have to do? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's such a powerful concept because when we – when companies, uh, all companies have inputs and outputs and in healthcare, when the outputs focus on better care outcomes, better care maintenance, more integrated care, better prevention, uh, so on and so forth and the payment moves to reward that, we care less about what do we own and control you know, because there are – you know, basically every company owns things, partners uh, for important things that they don't own and then uh, buys or outsources other services. Uh, you can become agnostic about where you own, where you partner, where you outsource if the goal remains uh, completely focused on, on the desirable outcomes and organizing the company to achieve those outcomes. Um, Amazon's a great example of a platform company and Jeff Bezos is a classic hedgehog, uh, the old Greek proverb that hedgehogs know how to do one thing very well and uh, foxes know how to do uh, many things uh, but not as well. So what Jeff Bezos is able to do is, is focus entirely on how do I deliver greater value to customers and that one powerful uh, monolithic uh, vision powers everything that happens at Amazon. Is it better for customers? Yeah, let's do it. Um, and I think that's you're 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 keying into the ability of the system to, uh, as it focuses on consumerism and solving customer problems, to change the way it delivers care, to change the way we pay for the care we receive, so that ultimately we unleash the American innovation engine to really deliver better outcomes, lower costs, better customer experience, greater compassion, greater empathy, more convenience, all of the things that we want and expect in the rest of our lives. Imagine if American healthcare steps up to that. And I think your platforming concept, uh, which which you keyed me in uh, into last summer, is is really a key for, for achieving that. Are, are you hopeful or not hopeful about American healthcare and, and its ability to to achieve this this vision. I am very hopeful. Um, in fact, I think it's it, as I kind of go through the list of possibilities of what will happen with American healthcare. I think it it exactly as you said so beautifully. Unleashing the American innovation engine is is what's going to work. We all know we're going through the payment model reform, through the care delivery system reform, through the check reform, through the. Um, name, name your version of reform in healthcare, right. um, but but it's changing, and the reason it's changing isn't necessarily because the government says you know we're going to pass a new bill. The reason it's changing is because people cannot afford, our country cannot afford the way that it is today, and we we know now what those health outcomes are that we're delivering, and know that it's it's better elsewhere. What better opportunity for disruption is there? So so I think if. American healthcare doesn't step in and figure out how to do what we do best and partner on the rest, um, then other people will disrupt us out from under us because they can't afford a bad product at high cost. And as soon as people have an alternative, they will choose that because that's what market forces do. <laughs> they, <laughs> they let the, the best product win. So I hope that we have some of the really amazingly good things left from the American healthcare system at the end of the transition. And I hope that the many 
physicians, nurses, caregivers who who literally devote their lives into to making the lives of others better um, continue to be able to do so in a way that they are are you know I, I want to have not just a sustainable workforce in healthcare. I want to have people who are really living their mission and being able to put their heart and soul into their work because. Honestly, that's what it takes to be a great clinician, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. So, want to be able to enable that, um, but it's going to be different than it is today. And I and I hope that the successive iterations that we're going to do with the innovation that's, that's that will be coming <laughs> are ones that continue to really um, optimize care and create healthier people and communities as we move forward. Well, Amy, you're as focused on innovation as any health leader I know. In fact, you're chairing the Data Palooza conference uh, in April. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, your insights into how innovation is emerging within healthcare. You've, you've touched on that already and and how it will begin to change the system from the bottom up. You don't ask any easy questions, do you? <laughs> well, that's because I have great confidence in my guests and particularly in you. So I... I I do think innovation is happening, and and like all good innovation, people who know a system incredibly well often have the best ideas for changing and transforming that system. And so that's where the bottom-up idea comes in. Um, And if you have those identifying people that are identifying problems and questions in the the pebble in the shoe, the the grit in your oyster, as as a friend likes to say, Mm -hmm. um, that if they're the ones who identify the problems and then partner very much with, with both tech innovators, big data, um, and people who have skills and, and, and putting together information disparate sources, um, I think that's where that innovation engine really starts to happen. That, that you have a problem that needs solving, somebody can solve it with a, um, a 10 times easier solution through leveraging technology, then that gets adopted. And then the next problem gets solved, and the next problem gets solved, and the next problem gets solved. And that kind of um, improvement slash innovation cycle is, is I think, the one that we're starting to to really start to see humming. I've seen some amazing things coming out of, of data and analytics engines that I, I never thought that we'd get to 20 years ago. So I'm really heartened by, by where we're seeing the great opportunities. Well, I, I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice, and uh, uh, I just one 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 last question. And um, you know, as you look back at your years in healthcare leadership, uh, and particularly at at Prov Saint Joe, but also at Kaiser Permanente, could you uh, pick out two things? One, what what's one of your favorite moments um, where something came together and crystallized and in just a wonderful outcome, just a, so a favorite moment, um, and then the achievement uh, for which you're most proud uh, as 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 a leader at, at some of the most important health systems in the country. So, <laughs> okay, um, I am a doctor enough that my favorite moments tend to be about the people. So I'm struggling to come up with exactly the right moment. Um, but but everyone that I'm thinking of is is around how we've been able to change someone's life. And the little tiny example that um, I was very happy worked with, and it was 
maybe the first or second year I was in practice, and a gentleman came to me who was um, definitely overweight, um, drinking a fair amount, um, and his blood sugar was up and his blood pressure was up, and he was uh, getting ready to get married for the second time. He was 50-ish. And I had a conversation with him about his risks and his ability to live a long and healthy life with his new wife and his new family and, and how that was going to be. And he said, well, what do I need to do? And we talked about what he could do to change his life. And I showed him his data and um, showed him where his numbers were. And then over the course of the next year, kept in close contact with him, kept updating the numbers, kept, kept tracking and showing him his progress. And, and he totally turned things around. By the time he was, they actually had the wedding, he was at an ideal body weight. His blood pressure was perfect. His blood sugar was in the normal range. And it was all because he did the right thing. He knew what the right thing to do was. He just needed somebody to kind of coach him along and help him get there. Um, and having that data available to him and the feedback that he saw it on a regular basis so that, that his mm-hmm. blood pressure was getting better, his sugar was getting better, his weight was getting better, helped him sustain that change. And the reason I, 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 it's one of my proudest moments, because that's really hard. That's really, really hard. It It is really hard. Completely change your behavior and your lifestyle, right? And, and that's the power we have as clinicians is we can change people's lives for the better. And, and so every time I, I think about this gift we've been given of these careers that we have, it's, it's helping people like that. Oh, by the way, I think also was a David. Um, <laughs> helping people, <laughs> helping people like David be able to to live their life that they want to live is really the, the ultimate job that I think we should be performing. Well, what a wonderful, wonderful story, and shows me why you're a fan of Marcus Welby. <laughs> uh, and and our goal really should be able should be to replicate these moments every day across the country in each clinical setting so that patients and doctors really can come together to to solve real problems, uh, not just address the byproducts of illness, but what, what, what actually is causing it and how can we help them achieve their goals and how can we build a, a healthier, more productive society? The most proud? Yep. Um, I think most proud is probably a recent thing in that that we've been working with our clinical institutes, which are like the people, um, for example, everybody, if you, if you had heart trouble, who would all you would do on your team? You'd need cardiologists and cardiovascular surgeons and, and nutritionists and exercise physiologists, right? So all those people aggregate into a clinical institute within Providence St. Joseph. And so we've worked very closely with our clinical institutes to do a couple things. One is to um, make sure we can we have data registries so we can put information together, um, and, but also make sure that those registries include outcome information, patient-reported outcome information. And patient-reported outcomes are, are things like not only did you get care and was your cholesterol improved, but also is your life better? Hmm. And can you do the things you want to do because you received medical care, like you can go back to golfing again after a heart attack or, or walk your daughter down the aisle at her wedding, right? So those those... So did my life get better because I sought healthcare called patient-reported outcomes measures? And so something we've recently been able to do within Providence and Joseph is create this really cool value-oriented architecture that we asked our clinicians, our doctors, our nurses, 
what do you care about if you're better at? And what do your patients care about if you're better at? And, and we used that, what we call our give it index, to form an outcome index. And then we're able to plot those outcomes compared to the cost of care. And so we've come up with value information that, that our clinicians can use to say, you know, I want to provide great care at an affordable price for my patients. Where do I stand compared to my colleagues? And it is amazing what having that information allows physicians to do. It's not, nobody comes to work to do the wrong thing every day. Now the fact that we've made it transparent, at least in these early stages, is, is making people be successful at what they want to do. It's giving them the information and the tools they have to really be the best clinician they can be. That's been really cool. Well, you know, it's it's there's a direct link between your favorite moment and your proudest moment, and it, it comes to helping patients uh, achieve their objectives and clinicians be constructive uh, coaches and caregivers in, in that journey. So thank you for sharing both of those with us. So this is a good place to land. Uh, Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, great physician, great person, great inspiration. Uh, thank you so much for, for being with us. And, you know, keep up the terrific work. Keep slaying dragons. Keep, uh, keep trying to bring Marcus Welby back into the day-to-day life of American healthcare. Thanks so much for being with us, Amy. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care. If you're frustrated with healthcare, if you want to understand how the system is reinventing itself through relentless bottom-up market-driven reform, Please subscribe to our podcast at foresighthealth.com. Be a rebel with a cause. Help us fix American healthcare. Until next time, this is Dave Johnson.